We've seen this weekend what grace is. Two words. Undeserved kindness. Not just kindness, but kindness that you don't deserve. I'm reminded of a story of a father who went um, out and left his two children at home. He said, I won't be long. If you're good, when I get back, I'll give you a pound each. And, of course, he went out. He was a little bit longer than he should be. And uh, boy and girl, and they got into trouble. And before long, there was a vase breakage. Dad's favorite vase was on the floor in pieces. And just at that moment, he comes back through the door. There's tears. There's, it wasn't my fault, it was his, etc. And the dad looks at them and he says, well, look, you deserve punishment. But I want to teach you what grace is. And he takes two pound coins out of his pocket. He gives one to one and one to the other. And they say, thanks, dad. If you give us two pounds, that would be amazing grace. <laughs> and boy, you know, that's something that has happened to us. We just haven't had the one pound. We've got the two pound. Grace is undeserved kindness. We've also seen what grace is not. Grace is not a license to sin. It's not. But we're saved so that we can live a holy life for him. It's not a license to sin. It is undeserved kindness. We've seen that grace is uniquely Christian. The story is told of C.S. Lewis, the famous academic, as he walked into the staff room and all the academics were sitting around there discussing what was distinctive about the Christian faith. And they'd been at it for hours, as they do. And C.S. Lewis walks in and he said, what's the question? He said, well, we're trying to think what's distinctive about the Christian message. And he said, that's easy. One word, grace. You see, you don't get grace in any other message in any other religion the idea of undeserved kindness of God to sinners like us it's something that's in the Bible and nowhere else and of course we've learned that we're saved by grace we are to grow in grace and in whatever befalls us in our Christian life his grace is sufficient for us his grace is enough we've also saw this morning that grace in a person is the lord jesus christ we read it so often the grace of our lord jesus christ and the verse for me which sums it up it was also shared through this weekend for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich Yet for your sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. Consider how rich he was. He owns everything. He made everything. The cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine, the Son of God from all eternity, the heir of everything the creator, how rich he is. Consider how poor he became so that when he preached on a penny, he said, show me a penny. It seems he didn't have one in his pocket. As they gambled for his clothes, he left the world with absolutely 
nothing. They took away even his garments. Consider how poor he became. Consider, um, you know, we had a trip a year or two ago for a wedding anniversary to Israel. I went to see Capernaum where Jesus had a house. Those houses that our Lord lived in, they are just so small and so pokey. You can see the ruins. They would fit two of them on this stage. And the Lord of glory lived in a place like that. How poor he became. Consider how poor we were without hope, without God, subject to his wrath. How poor you and I are when we're born into this world. We're born sinful, lost, condemned, and under his wrath. We are born spiritually destitute with nothing. And it gets worse the day after day as we go through life. How rich he was, how poor we are, and yet how rich we become through his grace. When a person becomes a Christian, all our sins are washed away. But it's better than that. All his righteousness is put into our account. I'm reminded of the businessman who went to see the bank manager. And the bank manager said, Mr. Smith, the idea was that you should bank with us, not that we should bank with you. The guy was so far in debt, he couldn't pay. And of course, the bank manager uh, cancelled all his debt. Isn't that wonderful? It would never happen. But the gospel is better than that. Because in the gospel, the bank manager puts all his money in the man's account. And he takes us in the gospel. We are infinitely in debt. He doesn't just bring us back to zero. He puts us infinitely in credit. He gives us all his money. God has given you all his riches in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified with all his righteousness. It belongs to us. Whose is the righteousness of Christ? It's the righteousness of God and it belongs to you when you believe. It's the great exchange, all of your sin for all of his righteousness. But not only that, it gets better. We are not only justified, we are adopted into his family. We become sons of the living God. Sons of God. Think of it, folks. But not only that, we become united to Christ forever. He is our husband. And we are his bride. We are justified. We are adopted. And we are united. How rich we are. Think of it, folks. How rich you are today before God. Think of it as the angels who listen to this message. And they do. Because they gather where we gather. They do not know what you know. They've not tasted what you've tasted. You are rich because he became poor for your sakes. Hallelujah. Grace is a big word. There's a lot in it. When you you think we're very familiar with the word perhaps, but you know the more you look at this word, the more you realize it just unpacks into a lot uh, of different aspects. It's a word that you need to understand and so do I. It's there in the New Testament. It's there in the Old Testament. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. When the world was condemned, Noah was saved. Lot found grace 
in the days of Sodom as he was pulled out and the judgment fell. You have found grace. In a world that's doomed, you have been saved by his grace. We ought to be thankful. The Father is gracious. The Son is gracious. And the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of grace and supplication. Grace is communicable. Some of God's things are not given to us. It's not given to us to know everything. It's not given us to be everywhere. But grace is given to us. His grace becomes yours when you trust him as your saviour. It is undeserved. It is unexpected. And it is extreme. In every way, grace is extreme. What's the greatest illustration of grace in the Bible? I like the prodigal son. He walks out on his father with the money. He wastes his inheritance. He is a waster. He sinks so low, he's feeding pigs. Something that a Jewish person would hate to do. And he's hungry enough to eat their food. He comes home smelling of the pigsty. He doesn't deserve his father's love. And yet he receives it. He didn't expect to be clothed and treated like a son again. But he was. He did not expect a feast in his honor. Shoes on his feet. And yet he was given those things. How would he live after that? ever conscious of his father's grace to him and such is God's grace to you and to me grace is undeserved unexpected extreme one more thing it's unbelievable it's unbelievable if it wasn't true what did the elder brother say when he came home he can't believe it there's the feast there's the festivity there's the, his little brother dressed in, in fine robes with, with shoes on his feet. And he says these words. I'm going to accentuate them because it might well have been like this. He says to his dad, you have slain for him the fatted calf. He can't believe it. Two points. Grace is unbelievable if it's not true. How careful as well we need to be of ever being like the elder brother when others are blessed and we think they don't deserve it. Let's be those who rejoice in the gifts and the graces of others. All Paul's letters start, sorry, 13 out of 14 start with grace. And all of them end with grace. And the gospel through which we are saved is called The gospel of grace. And in the letter to the Ephesians, we get the grace 12 times. It occurs 12 times in six chapters, three of them that Beth has read to us in this chapter three. So let's look at chapter three. Ephesians, of course, a very important church in the New Testament and a very important letter. Paul spent three years in Ephesus. It was a capital city of the Roman province of Asia, or Turkey, as we now know it. It was a big place, it was an important place, 
and Paul chose to focus a lot of his ministry in Ephesus. Timothy was Paul's representative in Ephesus and the Apostle John also was there. It occurs in the book of Revelation. The Ephesian church is one that's important in the New Testament. So, what was it like? Well, if you walk down the main street in Ephesus, on the hill behind, you would see this huge temple. It was the temple of Diana. Great is Diana of the Ephesians, said the crowd, for two hours in the arena. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was 137 meters long. Now that's big. It was 69 meters wide and it was 18 meters high. It had 127 columns. It was absolutely massive and it dominated the life and the economy of the people in Ephesus. And in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul reminds the church that there is another temple. It's greater by far. It is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the great cornerstone of this temple is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the foundation for the temple of God, which is the church built not with human hands but a wonder of all eternity built by God himself planned in the eternity before time to be admired and wondered at in the eternity to come the church of the living God and the wonderful news to the Ephesians Jews and Gentiles in that church was this You are part of that temple by grace. And the wonderful news for us today, you are part of that temple by grace. You are part of that temple by grace. God has chosen you to be part of that temple by grace. You are a stone in that living temple that God is building. Do you know, a little boy once asked his dad, what does God do, dad, from day to day? And the dad thought about it for a bit and he said this, God is building a temple. And he is. He is building a temple. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is building his church. You and I are privileged by grace to be a part of that temple. Now, the wonderful news to the Ephesian Christians and to us, they were to be included in the new temple. By the way, one of the themes of Ephesians was unity. You know that. It comes up a lot. Why was that? Because they had Jews. They liked to keep the law and do it right. And they had Gentiles. They were a lot more relaxed and they had no claim upon uh, to be included in the temple whatsoever. They were there definitely by grace in every church. I've noticed there are Jews and there are Greeks, there's those who like to do it all right, and there's those who are far more laid back. But God wants us all to be one in him for his glory. Now, of course, we have been included in this temple of the living God. Why is this chapter in the Bible? Well, the purpose is threefold, I suggest to you. Firstly, Paul, when he's writing this letter, where is he? He's in 
prison. And uh, he doesn't want the Ephesians to lose heart because of his troubles. He says that uh, in verse um, 13, uh, sorry, of chapter 3. He says there, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Now, why would the Ephesians particularly lose heart? Well, one reason was because, of course, the apostle who'd founded the church was now in prison. Did this mean that God had somehow got it wrong? Well, uh, he has to remind them that he is a prisoner of the Lord. Verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. He has to remind them that although it was the Romans who put him in shackles, it's actually the Lord who's put him in that prison. And you know what? Uh, they Ephesians may have felt some responsibility for that imprisonment. Why? Because Paul was arrested on the false charge in Jerusalem of bringing a Gentile into the temple. He didn't do it, but that's what the Jews said. Do you know where that man was from? He was from Ephesus. He was one of theirs. He was Trophimus. And of course, the Ephesians might have felt, oh no, it's because of us that he's in prison. Paul says, no, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I wonder, am I speaking to anyone today and they feel as if they're in a prison? Difficult circumstances can't change problems and issues. But you know, one of the ways that we deal with that is to realize that God has put us where we are. God is the one who's in control of our circumstances. Some of our brothers take this very literally and they go into the prison every day, uh, Gerard and Nigel. But some of us feel the prison of circumstances. Do you know, we have to realize that we're there by God's grace and his grace is sufficient. And Paul wants them not to give up because he's in prison, but to realize, to glorify God, even though he was in prison for their sakes. That's what he's saying there in verse uh, 1 and verse 13. He's writing because he does want them to appreciate the wonder of the gospel. Now the plans for the Ephesian temple had been drawn up and it had been built. But the plans for the gospel temple, they'd been drawn up in eternity, but they'd only just been revealed as a mystery that is now open, an open secret. And Paul is saying this, that this gospel, this gospel mystery that God would bring Jews and Gentiles together in one glorious temple is now to be proclaimed all over the world. And by the way, some feel there are two temples, a Jewish one and a Christian one. Paul doesn't speak of that. He speaks of one temple into which Jew and Gentile are one in Jesus Christ. No wall of partition, no separate Jewish church, one body Jew and Gentile united in Christ. This had been a mystery for centuries, 
Now it's known. And Paul is saying this. I want uh, to this to be proclaimed. I'm a minister of this mystery. To me is given uh, the, according to the gift of the grace of God to preach among the Gentiles this unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul wants the Ephesians not to lose heart and he wants them to understand and appreciate the, just the wonder of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he wants to finish his prayer, which he does. And we get an amen in verse 20. They are chosen in Christ. They are built on Christ. They are built through grace. They are built through sharing the gospel of grace. The Ephesians were the one, the recipients of a lavish, eternal, undeserved and free grace. Purchased at infinite cost, the blood of Christ, costly to God, but free to them. And Paul wants them to appreciate that. And you know, as we come to the end of our reunion weekend, we've had a summer sharing the gospel of grace. Let us appreciate the greatness it is to be saved and to have this gospel to share with others. Three questions as I conclude. Paul was so overwhelmed by the wonder of the gospel, the grace of it and the glory of it, he says these words. Um, to me, he says, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He saw it as a tremendous privilege to have been given the gospel to preach. Now, my question first is this. How do you, how do I view the task of preaching the gospel? We believe it. We're saved by it. But how do we view the task of preaching it? Paul viewed it as a tremendous privilege. And think of it, folks, to go on a mission, a beach mission or wherever, to take a tract round, to talk to another person, to write them a letter, to mark a PBC, to, to do anything we can to preach this unsearchable message. Paul regarded it as a great privilege. How do you regard the preaching of the gospel? Should we not regard it as an equally great privilege that we have? We have the energy, we have the life, we have the desire, we have the experience. What a privilege that is, you and I, to share the gospel of uh, grace. He uses the word unsearchable. That means untraceable. We'll never fathom all the glories and details of it. They're beyond us. But what a privilege it is to have to share it. Do you view it, folks? Do I view it as something that's a privilege that's given to us to share? A steward, it's someone who's been given something to keep and they've got to hold it and, and do what's right with it before they pass it on to someone else. 
We have been given the gospel and we're to charge from the Lord to pass it on to someone else. How do you view the task of sharing the gospel? The other thing that overwhelms him is this, that he, a former persecutor and blasphemer, was now given to be a preacher of the gospel. That he was now, he was so overwhelmed by that, he uses another strong word. He says, I am less than the least of all the saints. How do you feel about yourself today? Sometimes we can feel like that, can't we? I'm less than the least. You don't know what I'm like. But you know, God knows what we're like. And he gives us this task of sharing the gospel, whatever we're like. We're saved by his grace. We're saved to share it. And though we might see ourselves as less than the least, less than others, less than the best, less than we could be, less than we should be, but let's be overwhelmed by the gospel and share it with others. And the question is this, whether Paul lived as a tent maker or whether he lived supported by the gift of others, he was saw his life as to be one which was given to gospel ministry. How about you and how about me? Some of us, some of us God may call to live up through the gifts of others. Praise God for those who go to the mission field and take other full-time appointments. Most of us won't be. But we're called to live and preach the gospel in the regular, everyday lives that God has called us to give, to, to live for him. Are we living for him? And the final question in this chapter, Paul was overwhelmed by the wonder of the gospel. He was overwhelmed by the fact that he had been chosen to preach it. He was overwhelmed by the greatness of God's power shown by that which was to come, the building of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout all generations of earth's history. Paul is sitting in a prison cell in Rome and he's writing to the Ephesians about a plan that started in eternity and will continue to when Jesus comes back and the church is complete and then it will be the dwelling place of God for eternity. And he says this, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and forever. Paul has got a huge vision of the grace of God He's glad to be part of it. He's thrilled that he's been chosen to take it and he just wants to see it go out. How about us? Why should we live for anything less than this? This is God's work. This is God's plan. This is God's grace. Let us be those who give ourselves to knowing him and then making him known far and wide. And to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or even think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory by Jesus Christ.
through all generations forever. Amen.